episode number 32, Clearing the Haze Virtual Summit Speaker Profile with Nadine Wetzel. Keeping today's workplace drug-free should not be confusing. This is the Clearing the Haze podcast, giving you the tools you need to most effectively address drug and alcohol use and decreased productivity in the workplace while investing in your positive company image. Now, here's your host, Chuck Marting. Well, welcome to Clearing the Haze podcast. We're doing another speaker profile, and today we have Nadine. Nadine, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to have you um, go ahead and do an introduction, uh, who you are, what you do, a little bit of your background, just to let uh, our listeners know who you are, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay, thanks. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled to be part of this. Very exciting. It's my first virtual conference, so it's a little bit nerve-wracking, but the hardest part for me is not being able to see people's faces because I so read what people are thinking or what I think they're thinking. Anyway, so hi, everyone. I'm Nadine Wenzel. I'm a pharmacist. I'm Canadian. I live on the east coast of Canada, which I usually say is east of Maine. So it's it's out there in the Atlantic Ocean, not that far. We're almost an island. We have this tiny little isthmus that connects us to the rest of the country. Uh, I choose to live and work here because it's a beautiful part of the world. And so I'll, I'll start by saying, if any of you ever decide you want to come and visit, I love playing tour guide. So there. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so I'm a pharmacist by education, and I've been working as a workplace drug and alcohol and cannabis consultant for 15 years. Uh, I started, yeah, I, I got started in this when I stopped working as a narcotic inspector for Health Canada. So I was, as a pharmacist, you have to be, uh, have that credentialing to be a narcotic inspector. And I had access to any narcotic records that were required federally um, under federal jurisdiction. So I had access to hospitals, pharmacies, physicians, veterinarians, wildlife biologists, anyone who had legal access. And I was looking for a diversion. Uh, and I dealt a lot with police. And most of my approach was always education. It was about helping people understand the missing pieces. And very rarely were people ever doing anything wrong. There were regs that they might not have adhered to simply because they didn't know they had to. Mm-hmm. Um, so my focus the majority of the time was education. But then there was that probably 5 to 10% that was the criminal element when people would be intentionally diverting prescription narcotics and controlled drugs. And then I would get involved in investigations that would go a number of different ways. And I dealt a lot with the regulatory bodies for health professionals. So pharmacists, doctors, dentists, nurses, and um, also with the police, because I didn't need a warrant. So I could access records that made the police's life much easier. And they really, yeah. Having been a police officer, I can understand and appreciate that. Exactly. (laughs) And I had the benefit of or the opportunity, I guess, of teaching at the Canadian Police College in Ottawa. And I taught with various police forces across the country. And that was really good for me because I learned a lot of what was going on in the street, which I didn't really know. And then I would talk with them about what I knew from a, what I used to call more of a sanitized clinical version of prescription (laughs) narcotic diversion. And actually, the opioid problem we have now is not new. It's just much larger. Uh, It existed when I was a narcotic inspector 20 years ago, Uh, but it was kept to a culture of people who were in that milieu and it wasn't readily well known by the general public. And I think probably because primarily of social media, it's so much easier now to to divert and there's so much more accessibility that didn't exist then. So I started with all of that and then I was teaching at uh, our university here, Dalhousie University. I was teaching pharmacy law and healthcare ethics and talking a lot 
lot about prescription drug abuse and diversion. And people kept calling me from when I had been a narcotic inspector and they would ask me for their help, my help on how they would deal with certain situations. So I started thinking, well, maybe there's there's a role here that I could play. And so I decided to create my own business and I've been doing it for 14, 15 years. Uh, So I work with employers to help them address substance abuse in the workplace from a health and safety perspective, because that's really what it is. And we have a, a strong push on health and safety here in Canada. So it's, it, it sometimes ends up being punitive if that's the last resort, but it's really about helping employers keep their workplaces safe. Uh, we don't have legislation in Canada like you do in the U.S., so I follow the standards under the U.S. DOT, which I know you're all probably very familiar with, for collections and testing and, and all those things. And even the drug panels that we initially started using were the ones that were under U.S. DOT. And since that time, because I know what I know about diversion, I've expanded that to include the synthetic opiates that are now under USDOT, but I was having my employers look at that 15 years ago, as well as fentanyl and methadone and sometimes and benzodiazepines. So those are additional ones that are not on the USDOT list that I recommend my clients test for because they're a problem and they're prevalent in the workplace. So I think there's some things that are being missing. And so a big part of my work is advocating and uh, educating. So I start at the top, I have to have an internal champion and sometimes it's CEO, sometimes it's safety, sometimes it's HR and I deal with them in the capacity of helping their workplace be safer and healthier. So the foundation is a drug and alcohol policy, of course, which I I know many of you are familiar with, but what I really focus on is the infrastructure. So what about the DER and what do they need to know? In Canada, we tend to call them a program administrator, just different term. And what's the infrastructure? So how do you access an addiction specialist? What protocols do you need to have in place? What about testing? Are you doing oral fluids? Are you doing urines? And I always ask, what is the goal that you want to reach first? And then we look at what's the most appropriate testing. I have moved dramatically from um, a balance between urine and oral fluid testing to primarily oral fluid testing because we're looking for active drug for parent compound. Because most of the cases in which they're testing from a health and safety perspective is related to reasonable cause or post-incident. The only time urine testing is still relevant in my world is return to work and ongoing aftercare because you're looking for metabolites, you're looking for abstinence of use over time. So um, I provide a lot of resources to my clients on what are the best resources? Who do you need for, we call it a substance abuse expert in Canada, you have a SAP in the US. What about a medical review officer? What do you need to have from them? What do you expect from them? And what about the testing? So I do a lot of background on that. And then the part that I think I enjoy the most is the supervisor training um, Mm -hmm. and the employee education. So and what my clients tell me is they love the work I do because I get buy-in. I get comments that I, I know my stuff. And I think having worked as a narcotic inspector and worked with police has helped me a lot in that capacity. Um, But also, I don't BS. I'm just plain talk. This is what it is. It really is focused on health and safety. Transparency is integral. And this really is about everyone taking responsibility for each other and making sure that you understand the consequences of substance use and how that can create a huge health and safety risk and the employer's obligation to deal with that from a due diligence perspective but equally from a duty to accommodate. Because in Canada, if you have a duty to accommodate, if someone has an addiction, because an addiction is deemed a disability. So so that's why I'm often routinely involved with employers to help them 
go through that process to guide them on a return to work agreement or what a treatment agreement needs to look like and how they monitor and adhere to that. So that's a lot of information, but that's in essence who I am and what I do. Well, and there's a lot of good information there because my the wheels in my head are spinning because I'm wondering <laughs> how I know how legalization of marijuana and medical marijuana has turned our world upside down here in the United States. Um, there's a lot of confusion with employers as to what they can and can't do. How do you handle certain situations, especially right now with the COVID-19 stuff going on right now? We have many employers that have individuals that are working from home. And mm-hmm. so some of the questions that I've received from clients has been, they have a, a meeting, a virtual meeting, like what you and I are doing right now for the podcast. And while they're doing that, they're making observations with people mm-hmm. and saying, you know, he's slurring his words. He's not acting the way he usually does. So they're seeing signs and symptoms of impairment. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, they're on work time. Mm-hmm. How do you enforce that since they're in their own home now? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different elements that we're going to have to deal with here in the United States really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And so... I'm wondering how not only has the legalization of marijuana in Canada affected employers as far as is there as much confusion there as there is here on what you can and can't do and, and how you deal with employees. And do you see, I don't know with COVID-19 if it's to the extent there with uh, the stay at home orders and stuff like that, like it is here, how do you envision that affecting your employers and, and those you're working with right now? There's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> Told you my head was spinning. So yeah. sometimes I ask too many questions. So um, no, no. If, if you if you need me to help you out with that, let me know. But uh, yeah, I just I, I was thinking about that as you were talking. And uh, it's you guys are right next door. And so I, I imagine the same issues that we're dealing with, you're dealing with as well. We are. So we've had legalization. Um, anything related to cannabis is federal. Mm-hmm. So we've had legalization of cannabis since October of 2018. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, actually starting in 2001, we had medical ac- can- access to cannabis for medical purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't a lot of direction there. So there, there's really two streams. So let me start first with the legalization of cannabis. And actually, I've been talking about this a lot over the last two years because there is just what you said, so much confusion and misunderstanding and misinformation. And so when I finished, people used to say, usually say, why don't we know this? And, you know, do you talk to kids? So, yes, I'll talk to any kids anywhere, anytime, any forum. Um, But why you don't know this is because from my world, the cannabis lobby is very powerful, very strong, very vocal. And they don't want you to know the science side of it. They tend to slur over that. And that's why I'm looking forward to talking about CBD, because in in the conference session, of course, Mm -hmm. because there's so much misinformation and most of it is inaccurate. And I want people to understand and know what the science tells us right now, what we're looking to for the future, and what are the concerns that you need to be aware of, and how can you as individuals in your TPA capacities or whatever other type of work you do, how can you educate your clients, even your colleagues and your friends, for heaven's sake? So it's important. Okay, so from a legalization perspective, I say cannabis is not unlike alcohol. Just because it's legal doesn't mean you can use it indiscriminately anytime, anywhere. You have to be mindful. So you don't smoke up before work, just like you don't drink before work or at work. Or right, at, right after work is, is where the debate starts. And it's because there's so many variables. 
And I talk about how cannabis is very different than alcohol because it's fat soluble. And, and I can say as a pharmacist, it's unlike any other drug that I've ever known because it adheres to our fat cells in our brain and all other parts of our body and it's released gradually over time. Alcohol, we eliminate a drink an hour if we're healthy. So you can do the math on how much you're consuming. But with cannabis, there's so many variables on strength, uh, your body composition, your experience with cannabis, um, how much you're smoking, how often. There's all kinds of, of elements that contribute to how long that drug is going to stay in your system and how long it's going to be released before you're clear and would have a negative test. Mm-hmm. So I, I get lots of questions around that. Um, and so I always say, okay, guys and ladies, you know the rules. Your employer expects you to be drug and alcohol free while you're at work. And if there's a reasonable cause test or post-incident, because we don't do random testing in Canada, um, if there's reasonable cause or post-incident and you're tested and you're testing positive, then you will be held accountable. So the question I always get is, well, you know, what I do in my own time is my own business. And I say, sure it is. But if you are smoking up in the weekend and you're smoking enough of it that's of high potency, you are not going to be clear on Monday. And if there does happen to be an incident or if your behavior is such that it's deemed that you need to have a reasonable cause intervention or test, you're probably going to test positive. And so you have to understand the consequences of that. And so then I go through quickly what the process is. If that's the case, there's an automatic referral to a substance abuse expert. If they're found to have an addiction, they're required to follow all of the criteria and recommendations of the addiction specialist. And then they go through the return to work process. Most people who test positive for cannabis and start that process don't finish. Um, Most of them, every single case that I've been involved with, they have had an addiction because that's another misunderstanding. Many people think they can't be addicted to cannabis, and they certainly can. You know, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychiatric Disorders Diagnosis, includes cannabis use syndrome and cannabis withdrawal syndrome. So you certainly can become addicted to cannabis. So that's all a, a matter of how important your job is versus how important your recreational activities are. Yeah. From a use perspective. Right. So now medical is different. I mean, cannabis is cannabis. I always say it's going to affect you the same. But from a medical use perspective, um, what are the guidelines? So in Canada, any physician that's authorizing cannabis for medical purposes is expected to follow national guidelines that were established in February of 2018 by uh, our College of Family Physicians of Canada. Um, And they researched all of the evidence across the world. They looked over a hundred, over a thousand different studies and wanted to see what is the evidence that we have so far to support the use of cannabis for medical purposes. And they created an algorithm. And in the Reader's Digest of this is that it's only for a certain number of indications, spasticity secondary to multiple sclerosis or spinal cord injury, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, uh, neuropathic pain. That's pretty much it. If your person that's asking you for cannabis for medical purposes doesn't fall into those categories, cannabinoids are not recommended. And if they are under one of those diagnostic criteria, then it's expected that you would try everything else that's recognized to be a reasonable treatment first. And if they don't work, then the option could be to use one or two of the prescription cannabinoids. There is no evidence for medical cannabis in any way, shape, or form. So how that works in, a, in an employment situation, uh, first of all, an individual is required in their policy to identify if they're consuming something that could make them unsafe. 
Um, and then there's a review by an occupational medicine physician who would apply those guidelines when they're talking to the authorizing physician. Of course, this is all with the consent of the individual. Um, and I can tell you every single case that I've been involved with, the authorizing physician has never met those guidelines. There's two precedent-setting cases. Uh, one is an arbitration from uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, and the other is a human rights case over the last two years, where the arbitrator and the human rights tribunal person who was reviewing the case found in favor of the employer because there was too much evidence about safety and concerns related to that, that it overrode. The, so the safety priority and the safety concerns related to the use of cannabis were what were given the weight. And uh, the individual in the case of the arbitration, his, uh, it was a hiring situation. He was not hired. That was upheld. And in the human rights tribunal, the human rights complaint was dismissed. Wow. Wow. So uh, that's a, a really strong tool that I use that many people aren't, in Canada aren't even aware of. Yeah. And there's a lot of unholy alliances happening. There are physicians who are being paid to authorize cannabis use. Oh, yeah. There yeah. are individuals. The who, yeah, exactly. So I, I won't even get into all of that. But yeah. And, and so any physician authorizing runs the risk if there is an accountability question uh, from an occupational medicine physician of being held to those guidelines. And I don't know how often uh, when they're not followed that a report is made to the regulatory body because each in our provinces, which are the equivalent of your states, if a physician does not follow nationally recognized guidelines from credible bodies, there's, a, there's an, a, an accountability there and there's a review, a practice review. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like you're dealing with a lot of the same issues that we're dealing with. Um, you know, it, it, it amazes me. I was talking to one of our colleagues, uh, Joe McGuire, the other day and doing her interview, mm-hmm. how quickly we have dismissed all the evidence and studies and everything that we've had prior to legalization and mm-hmm. everything and how all of a sudden they just don't exist because it was wrong. And now everything that we're hearing is, is the truth. And a lot of it is just, you know, hearsay going back and forth from people, you know, it does this for me. It does that for me. I was joking with her that, you know, at one time you just had people going in to get medical marijuana cards here in the United States because they just simply wanted to get high. Exactly. So they would go in and they would get a card. Now yes. they don't even bother going and getting a medical marijuana card because you can get it recreationally, but you still hear the same things from these people. They're using recreational marijuana. It's no longer I'm doing it because I want to get high. It's because I'm having trouble sleeping or I have a bad back or I have all this. And I'm, my question is, is, well, then why aren't you using medical marijuana? You're using, so the, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an excuse. It's a feel good thing. So mm-hmm. now they have a reason that they can throw out there that people aren't going to judge them by. So exactly, it's, it's very interesting. So I wanted to jump into um, a little bit about your topic, what you're going to be speaking about. And you, you kind of let the cat out of the bag a little earlier, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so we'll have you go over your topic. And if you can just give us kind of a, a, a brief um, overview of, of what it is that you're going to be covering on that topic, I think it's going to be very interesting and very powerful for a lot of people. Sure. Uh, if I can just comment on one thing that you just said, no, though, the, the, the lines are blurred. 
they're yeah. definitely blurred. And uh, in Canada, there was a clear distinction between the two prior to legalization. And that's exactly why many people were accessing or attempting to access medical cannabis was to get high. But the rationale now is um, because it's legalized, they, they know that they have to be uh, safe at work and drug and alcohol free. So the, the perception is that if they have a medical cannabis card, then that is full immunity that they can use their medical cannabis whenever they want. Wow. So that's why the process I talked about is so important. Most employers don't know it and don't follow it. And, you know, these guidelines came from our College of Family Physicians of Canada. I would expect that there would be something similar in the U.S. I'm not familiar with it. But in the absence of that, I would certainly think they could be referenced because the studies that were done were conducted by clinicians and academics from the University of Alberta and the University of British Columbia. And they're some of the most credible. I mean, they're all all researchers are generally pretty credible but these are some top-notch clinicians who really know very much about the topic they're very familiar with it so I just wanted to say that and the other part you mentioned at the beginning around someone working from home my comment would be that reasonable cause is still a reasonable cause and if you've got if you're you know what you're seeing and you know your people which is the most important part and this is out of character document everything have that discussion probably after the general meeting, <laughs> have that one-on-one -on -one discussion with them. And then I don't know what what's available in the U.S., but I would say if that employer has a contract so that a TPA can go on site, then can they go to that person's house? I don't know. Because of COVID-19, I don't know where the line is there, but I would think an employer would be well within their rights to identify what's going on and follow up further investigation. Now, in Canada yesterday, we had a national uh, COVID-19 session from one of our large TPAs, and they will still do drug and alcohol testing unless they believe that the person has uh, active uh, virus, and then they will withdraw. So they wear all the PPE, they wear all the protective stuff, but they still do testing. Yeah, we can, we can go, and we had a discussion with one of our employers that we would actually go with them. Um, we're not going to go into the home, but we can ask for the person to step out and do yes. a breath test and to do a saliva test because you're not going to, you know, have them give you a urine test in the front yard. <laughs> so, you know, it'd be kind of a, uh, no, that more like, we'd be looking at other legalities at that point. So, um, and I, I told him you would handle it just like you would anything else, you know, uh -huh. as long as you have your policies and procedures and this is the expectation, you're following them. Um, right. And the beautiful thing about right now is, when you're doing your meetings to tell everybody, this is a recorded meeting. Okay. Now you have documentation of right. what you're seeing that's causing you to create that reasonable suspicion or what's causing it for you to believe that something's going on. So you're doing everything right. Use the tools that you have and follow up. Exactly. So now you get there and the person decides to either not answer the door or not to step out. Well, that's a refusal to test because you knew that I was coming to come and do this. Mm-hmm. Good. So, so you've already got it nailed. Yeah. Where I see it falls down is many employers still here. I don't know about the U.S. I know that if they're federally federally regulated, they need to have a policy in place. But um, many employers here don't. Yeah. And, it, you know, we, same thing here. A lot of them haven't been updated and these guys aren't following them. Yep. So that's where a lot of the education comes in. It does. So. It does. Okay. So uh, CBD. 
talk about misinformation. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the fortune, I mean, I like to say this, I, I got to meet with you. I was in Colorado in February yes. and I got to see the prevalence of CBD in pharmacies. I thought, oh my heavens, like I had no idea. These tiny little vials and containers and they charge a bloody fortune for them. It's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> We're in the wrong business, I'm telling you. Yeah, no kidding. If I, so, if I didn't have to look at myself in the mirror, I would be right on it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yes, I know. But there's so much that people don't know about CBD. And here again, my overview of things is um, you talked earlier about the legitimization of uh, cannabis use for medical purposes because people don't want the stigma or they don't want to be judged. I think that the cannabis industry has certainly taken that avenue with CBD because it's non-psychoactive, generally speaking. Um, but there are some very unique things about CBD that make a person who's consuming them can make them unsafe to work. So I'm going to talk about some of that. You know, what is the science? What is CBD? Um, how does it differ from THC? Can you have the two together in one product or not? How do you know what concentration is what? What level above which do you need to have a safety concern? There's so many things around this. So I'm going to talk about from a science perspective, but not to get into the weeds, but just generally, what do we know? What are the facts? And what are the realities? And then what are the health risks? And what do you need to educate your employees about? Because I see this, you know, as trickling down to once we have this information in whatever context we have, then there's a responsibility to make sure your employees know it too. And then if there's anything that happens subsequent to that, you've got proof that you've given them the education and you've told them what your expectations are. And if something happens, then they need to be accountable from that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There's, go ahead. I, I don't know if you saw yesterday, there was a video that came out um, that uh, they were talking about a drug and alcohol testing collector who came back positive for marijuana after consuming CBD. And, and that just floored me that in the business that we're doing, that somebody would go ahead and use something like that. Or even I've even uh, come across a couple of collectors that are here in, in Colorado that openly talk about, you know, that they're using CBD and how wonderful it is. And I'm like, what a, what a, <laughs> what a double-edged sword you're living on here because you're testing people that could lose their jobs for coming up positive for marijuana, especially with DOT here in the United oh. States. DOT does not care whether it's nope. CBD or not. And I know that because I've got 10 drivers right now that have been violated and they all say it was because of CBD use. Now, can you absolutely prove that? No, but that's what they're saying it's coming from. And, you know, so that's, that's the problem that I have is that if we're not educated on this and we don't even understand the issues with this mm -hmm. and as a collector and as somebody that's going out and doing the testing, you know, to me, I'm like, that is such a double standard that you're doing it, but other people are losing their jobs for doing the same thing. Absolutely. So I would be asking the employer of those collectors, <laughs> do you know what's going on? Do you know that they're openly discussing this? And I would think that there is some onus of responsibility from a due diligence perspective, as well as health and safety to address that with those particular collectors. Well, and some of these are even owners of these companies. Oh, my goodness. Two of these people that I know personally are owners of the company, and they even tell their 
their clients that they're taking CBD and how great it is. And so I'm like, going, are you kidding me? So yeah, I, that's why I'm wow. saying I'm so grateful to you to be able to come in and shed some light on this because I think there's so much confusion, not even with our clients, but within our own industry in and of itself, people mm-hmm. understanding that yes, you can come back positive for, for marijuana with this stuff and how it works and what, what's going to happen later on from your use of it you know, that you're not seeing right now. I, I love what our, our surgeon general, when he came out talking about CBD, he, he said that this is the biggest bunch of snake oil salesman jobs that he's ever seen in his life. And and that's what I was saying earlier to people was that this is snake oil, man. I mean, if you listen to people, it cures everything. You can use it for everything. Now, does it have some medical benefits? Well, yeah, we found that it does have some, or they wouldn't have legalized it for the, the two forms of epilepsy that, that adolescents are having. So there are some some properties there, but there's also some significant risks with that as well that uh-huh. they've documented. So I am, I'm so grateful that you're going to be able to come in and do this and you have the background and the resources to be able to educate us on this. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. One thing that amazed me when I was in the U.S. recently was that there doesn't appear to be any quality control on the percentages of THC and CBD. Mm -hmm. And therein starts the problem, and it just magnifies from then. In the the manufacturing process, there's no set standard for processing for CBD. And we've seen here in Colorado a number of facilities that have been shut down or closed because they're biohazards in the way that they're utilizing it. You got to figure a lot of these guys are using ethanol in their process to um, change the formula or to extract the CBD from the plant. And um, there are such biohazards that are around with these places that they're just not, they're not getting it. And uh, you know, I've got friends that are on the fire department that said, you know, we, it, it, they say it's like going into a meth lab anymore, that you have to get suited up and everything else while they're dismantling this thing and shutting it down. That doesn't surprise me. And that's what, that was the visual that popped in my head when you said that, the biohazards. And so in addition to the biohazards, at least in Canada, our um, commercially available products have to go through Health Canada approval. And it's pretty rigorous. Um, we don't have GMPs, good manufacturing processes, as we do for pharmaceuticals. But we do have good produ- production processes. So there's at least some... Uh, monitoring of that but still you don't have any guarantee on you know the soils are there pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and you know what about heavy metal contaminants in the soils that these products are being grown in there so in addition to the extraction process there's the actual what is supplying what are the nutrients and what are the chemicals that are being used to enhance the growth of the product um, and how is that being passed on is it and and what hazards does that do those pose for people so yeah there's so many pieces Well, I am looking forward to your session um, a lot because I know that there's going to be a lot there for all of us to learn and and to have that understanding and then be able to share it with our clients and everybody else that really needs Uh to hear this. You know, when I wrap up our interviews, there's always a couple of questions or a couple of things that I do at the end. And and so I'm going to ask you, um, I know as an entrepreneur and, and as we learn and as we grow that we're constantly learning. And so part of that is in reading and, and listening to lectures or listening to audible books and things like that. And so I know that you're not an exception to that. So, you know, Nadine, if you're walking down the road and you came across a friend, you're going to go have lunch and, and you're talking to them. And you were to say, you know what, you've got to read this book. There is just so much here that you're going to benefit from. What, what would that book be? 
what is it that you're reading right now you're excited about? Actually, it's called, I was so excited when I saw this because it's, uh, <laughs> I read when I have, it's so refreshing for me to read things that are not work related. And this is the one indulgence I've allowed myself recently. It's called Talking to Strangers, <laughs> uh, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. Wow. Written by Malcolm Gladwell, who's Canadian. He's lived and worked in the U.S. forever. He uh, wrote for the New Yorker and the Washington Post. And he's written a number of books. One that most people know is Blink. Um, but this one for me is is really interesting because he almost, he talks about our, our truth bias and how, you know, how we assess and judge, not judge people from a, a moral perspective, but how we make determinations on them out how truthful people are being by how we interact with them and how we have a truth default and he talks things like about things like the Bertie Manoff uh, spectacle that happened and how there were a lot there were people who knew what was going on 10 years in advance but said oh well that's just a little thing maybe it's not a big deal and how you know a series of these add up to um, people tell us who they are but we often don't determine uh, or we don't allow ourselves to see that and value it. So it's really interesting. There's a lot of psychology behind it. And he's somewhat controversial. And I always like reading <laughs> someone who has a different take on things. His The way he views the world is different. But this, to me, makes a lot of sense. He talked about uh, Castro and how he fooled the CIA for a whole generation. You know, and how did that happen? And there was someone in the DIA that was a high-ranking person within the Cuban government. She was a spy for Castro. But she was, yeah, it, it's very wow. interesting. So, yeah, just it, it helps me think about things in a different way and go, oh, my goodness, maybe I do have the truth bias that's, <laughs> that's referenced here. Well, and, and as much as you're in contact with people, I can see how a book like that would really help in wow. analyzing and watching people and stuff like that. So that's intriguing. That's a book that I'll have to look at myself. So thank you for sharing that. You know, Nadine, I'd like to take a moment just to recognize in um, – tell you how much you're appreciated and thank you for coming on to the summit and being able to do that and acknowledge you for your your talents and your skills and the background that you have and your passion and your willingness to share that with other people is is a special gift and it's something that you don't see a lot in the world today so i want to thank you for being so willing to do that for us oh you're making me teary here (laughs) (laughs) well that wasn't that wasn't the goal but you know i think that there's a lot of times that we do things and we're just not acknowledged or we don't have people that understand that and i just want every one of you to know and, and those that are especially participating in the summit that um that you are much so appreciated and very much acknowledged in the expertise that you have and each one of our speakers that we have has got something they're bringing to the table that I know that a lot of us just have not heard or we just haven't mm-hmm. had the time to hear and uh-huh. it's very important especially with what we're dealing with today so uh-huh. I am very grateful and thank you for your willingness to do this thank you Chuck I'm honored to be part of this I'm so pleased that you invited me and I'm looking forward to learning from the others how's that I, it's going to be good it's going to yeah. be good so <laughs> Until uh, May 22nd, we'll uh, hear from you then. So thanks for your time and for doing the interview today with us. Thank you. We'll talk soon, I hope. We will. I would like to thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Clearing the Haze with our guest, Nadine Witzel. One of our featured speakers for the Clearing the Haze Virtual Summit, Unmasking the Marijuana Camouflage, a one-day event happening May 22nd. This event is being sponsored in part by Clearing the Haze podcast and on-site medical services. We're working hard to make our landing page and registration for this virtual summit available to you soon. 
So please stay tuned for that announcement. Clearing the Haze will be releasing two episodes a week leading up to the summit, as well as special bonus episodes. This is very exciting time for us and a very exciting event. So until our next episode with our next summit speaker, remember, it's your vision, it's your dream, and it's your business. Take care.